Agencies continue to lay out return-to-the-office plans. Now the National Science Foundation expects all teleworking employees to start coming into headquarters offices more often. NSF's is a long line of re-entry announcements from agencies, but this time the agency is getting some serious pushback from its union. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman joins me with more. And just begin, if you would, Drew, by outlining the changes. They're not exactly asking people to traipse in 10 days out of the pay period, are they? No, it doesn't sound like a lot. It's going to be four days per two-week pay period. That's how much NSF employees are going to be expected to report to the office. And this applies to NSF employees who are working at agency headquarters in the D.C. area. The change will take effect on October 23rd this year, so there will be a few months before we see that actually take effect. But in an email to all staff just recently, the two top leaders at NSF said that the idea here is to strengthen NSF culture. They talked about maintaining the business needs of the agency while also maintaining workplace flexibility. So they ensured the employees that there would be a permanent hybrid work schedule going forward. But that at the same time, there's this opportunity now to start reestablishing this in-person expectation as well. So four days out of 10 doesn't sound like a horrible burden, but the AFGE says they're not happy with it. What's their issue? The big sticking point here for AFGE, the American Federation of Government Employees, they said that the announcement from NSF leadership was made before the union was able to negotiate over the topic. So the announcement from the leadership, it is going to impact bargaining unit employees at NSF. But the union leaders said that there were only some initial conversations that took place before the announcement was made. Jesus Soriano, who is the president of AFGE Local 3403. He says that the return to office announcement, he called it nonsensical and says that telework was, you know, a really good flexibility for the agency during the pandemic. And even if from his perspective, four days per two week pay period doesn't sound like a whole lot, he said that it's still going to change the the landscape for these employees. Treating employees as uh, numbers on a spreadsheet. Instead of brilliant scientists and engineers and innovators, who are critical for discharging the the NSF mission. So there's a large group of employees for which there will be very big impact. And we have proposed to NSF all kinds of uh, flexibilities, but we have not agreed to anything yet. Well, of course, they were brilliant scientists before the pandemic, and everyone was teleworking, so I don't know what exactly has changed, except things getting back to normal. And they're not alone, as we said at the top. A lot of agencies have announced return to the office. Give us a rundown. What's the latest tally here, Drew? I don't have an exact number for you, Tom, but there are a lot of agencies who have been week by week or day by day announcing their return to office plans. And I think we're going to see a lot more of this coming up in the coming weeks or months. This fall seems to be about the time that agencies are going to start making these changes. But some that have made their announcements already are USAID, we have FEMA, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, the VA, Environmental Protection Agency, and the Department of Agriculture. And all of these agencies, the the through line is, is pretty similar. Most are expecting employees to return to the office maybe just a couple more days per week or per pay period. So they all are remaining on this hybrid work schedule where employees will still be able to telework, but just less often. And this is, of course, coming after that OMB memo from this spring, which told agencies to ramp up their 
meaningful in-person work and kind of measure productivity levels, delivery of services, and make changes to their office schedules where it was needed. Yeah, this is also 2010 sounding. And we should also point out that, as you reported earlier, the U.S. Agency for International Development, they've also reached out to contractors, many of whom are in the offices along with USAID people and saying, hey, you better review your own telework policies because, again, cohesion, communication, the culture, all these things they cited for contractors. So it's not just federal employees that are getting this pressure. And getting back to AFGE, what's going to happen now? There's kind of a standoff here. There is still a little bit of a question mark here for NSF employees. Soriano, who's the AFGE uh, representative for NSF employees, he said that they are putting together a counter-proposal with more flexibility for NSF employees that I would imagine he he didn't give the details yet, but it would probably increase telework or maintain telework levels where they are. And he's hoping to meet with management to discuss what his perspective on things. They're also considering a couple different legal options or the possibility of bringing this up to the FLRA if it comes to that. But of course, we don't really know exactly how this is going to play out. But for now, the the word on the street is uh, NSF employees back to the office two days per week starting in October. I guess one difference maybe between NSF, say, and as you mentioned, Veterans Affairs, at Veterans Affairs, most of their big medical centers throughout the pandemic had to, by definition, have large percentages of the staff in the buildings anyway, because nurses, doctors, technicians, orderlies, et cetera, et cetera, all have to be there. And so relatively fewer people were teleworking full time, maybe not so much at headquarters, but in the VA medical centers. NSF, there is no operational part of it. And so, well, they do have a C-130 airplane they fly around, but basically it's it's all office headquarters work. So a little bit of a nuance there. It really does depend on the position and the agency for, you know, what they're going to be looking at, how they're going to be measuring the value of telework and the value of in-office work. For NSF, they do have a lot of scientists, engineers, things of that nature. They do have people who are working remotely across the country It's not going to apply in the same way to everyone, but just that those at headquarters. And and as you said, the work is not necessarily as hands-on as the VA. Well, what we don't need is artificial intelligence. What we do need is teleportation and everybody be happy to go to work. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees, joined Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to share how his upbringing in rural Alabama eventually propelled him to the forefront of thousands of union members raising a collective voice. After years of leadership with both the largest federal employee union and as a pastor, Everett Kelly reflects on his deep-rooted values of integrity and hard work. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Mr. Everett Kelly, National President of the American Federation of Government Employees. Everett, welcome and thank you for being here. Shane, thank you. It's a pleasure. It's mine. You first joined AFGE in 1981 during what eventually became your 30 years of service at Anniston Army Depot. We're now more than 40 years past 1981, and you've been the union's national president since 2020. How's your decades-long involvement with AFGE impacted the way you view your role now 
as the union's leader? The time that I spent as local president, I simultaneously spent that same time as a pastor in Alabama. I like to say that this was my training ground because as I was entering into the role of unionism, I was also entering into ministry. And so I see my role even as the union leader, as ministry. It's never an understatement because this is what I believe. I believe that if you love people and show people that you love them, people will follow you. My business is in the business of growing people, uh, and that's what I do. And I, and I think that my training as a pastor and as a union uh, leader has given me the ability to really, you know, uh, grow people because I feel like that, you know, it's my responsibility both as a union leader and as a pastor to ensure that people have a livable wage. It's also uh, my responsibility to ensure that people are treated fair with dignity and respect on the job. And I think that goes in both uh, arenas. So, so I've seen this, you know, as ministry, as I've grown through the four decades of leading people. Putting those two together is amazing. AFGE handles a massive array of issues and topics of importance to feds across many departments and agencies. What is it like being at the forefront of all those moving parts, and how do you manage it all? Well, first of all, let me give kudos to my staff, okay? Uh, Because it's just no way that I could manage all of this work and all the moving parts by myself. But I have an excellent staff that always makes sure that I'm prepared and that I'm ready. But it's exciting. It's exciting to be out in the forefront, you know, uh, bringing people to the realization that they have something to fight for. But again, I cannot, and please understand when I say I cannot, it's it's what I truly believe. I cannot do it without a good, strong staff. Uh, And I tell anybody that, but I enjoy fighting for the cause. I enjoy standing in front of a group of AFG members, calling them to action, and then standing back and watching that action come to fruition. Because I know and I'm not the one that's doing it, okay? They are the one that's doing it. I'm merely casting a vision, right? And I enjoy casting a vision and then watching a vision come to fruition. And it's the staff and the members that get that done. As CEO at, at WEPA, I completely and totally understand that. We rely on them. It's not Absolutely. just nice to have. We rely on Absolutely. them. Absolutely. As AFGE president, you often speak at union rallies and other events widely attended by federal employees. What's it like to experience that direct connection to employees? And how does that influence your leadership style? You know, that gets me excited, okay? To be standing in front of a group of AFGE leaders get me excited. To hear the words, who are we? And the chants that come back that says AFGE gets me excited. It gets my motor uh, running, if you will. And it's exciting to look at them and see the motivation in their faces when they're fighting for a cause. And, and, and all of us come together and fight uh, in solidarity, fight as one, raise one voice. You can't explain the feeling. You just know that it's right. You know, I just know that it's right when I'm standing there and I feel this. And I never fail to say thank you again because I'm the one that merely cast a vision. They are the ones 
that get the work done. And so when I see them out there ready to go and that call to action goes out, and then I see them really begin to march on that uh, initiative. It's an energy that I cannot explain. I can explain it. I'm feeling it right now. <laughs> um, the, Describe how your personal background and upbringing folds into how you function as a leader. You know, understanding that I was born in the Deep South. I was born in a little small town in Goodwater, Alabama, population 1,292 today. Born to parents that, and I hope I don't offend anybody, and I've got to quit saying this, but, but I was born to a set of parents that believed and trusted in God. And that began to establish who I was. I began to trust God myself in everything that I do. I I trust God even in this situation as a union leader because my parents taught me to believe in uh, the Bible. And with that came do unto others as you would have them to do unto you. In other words, treat people right. Treat people with respect, right? Do what's right. It taught me, you know, about integrity, right? It taught me about being honest, you know, and that's what's needed in the role of a leader of this union. It's it's needed. uh, And, you know, I try to portray that. I try to portray a person of honesty and a person of integrity. And so being in the deep South, you know, you you, you just learn those things. And that's what has helped me uh, throughout my path as a union leader. And it's always nice that whole approach because you don't have multiple approaches with different people or different sets of different tasks, different energy. It's it's always straightforward, yes. honest. Here's the truth. Yes. And it, it's it's easy. Yes. Right? Yes. It's a lot easier than having multiple personas. Absolutely. You, yeah. Absolutely. What's one piece of advice if you could go back and tell yourself when you were starting your career? You know, I don't know you asked for one, but I'm I'm gonna have to elaborate on two. Yeah. If that's yeah. okay. Number one, I would explain the urgency of integrity a lot sooner than what I did, right? Because to me, integrity is not necessarily what you see others do or what others see you do, but integrity to me is what you do even when no one is looking. And so I I would really begin to stress that importance more so at an earlier state in my leadership role rather than the latter part. Okay. I, I begin to stress that more now, but I wish I had began to do that more at the earlier states in my uh, role. Secondly, I would tell myself to always, and I'm going back to my roots, always work hard and don't ever accept no as an answer, right? Because I just believe that if you want it bad enough, if you want to achieve it, you can't. It's all about the amount of work you put into it, right? And the and the amount of faith you have that it can be accomplished. So when I look at AFGE and its membership and where we were four or five years ago and where we are today, that's a reminder that you can do whatever you want to do if you put your mind to it and work hard enough. And one question that's always kind of interesting at, at the end of our time together is, is there one person, you mentioned your parents before, mm-hmm. um, is there one person or maybe more than one who really inspired you when you were younger that you might even think back on today? It was my grandmother. You know, with the understanding that when and when I was born, 
right? As I said, I was born in the Deep South. My father worked extremely hard. We didn't have a whole lot. You know, my, I had 12 siblings. And so when I was born, I was very sick. As a matter of fact, the doctor said I wouldn't live to be 16 years old. The doctor said I wouldn't ever hold a job. But my grandmother would always teach me how to pray. And she taught me about faith. And it is prayer and faith that has allowed me to be standing here today. Suppose I've been dead 50 years ago, but I'm 66 years old now. And it's all because of my faith and my belief and my prayer life. And I believe that beyond a shadow of a doubt. Amazing story. Thank you for sharing all of it with us, Everett. And really appreciate you being on the show today. Pleasure is mine. And this is Shane Canfield. We'll see you next time on Lessons in Leadership. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.